It's great to be part of an alive and active church. Handbells, communion, regular worship service, Sunday school class, we got it all going on, and it's great to see each of you here. Yes, um, my dear spouse has graciously shared her winter cold with me, so uh, no hugs allowed, and uh, we'll pray the voice gets through the lesson, but it's good to see you all here. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And these historical narratives are wonderful passages to use for examples of moral lessons. And that's what we'll be doing again today as we look at this particular passage. Before we begin, let's ask the Lord to guide us in this study. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to be able to be here this day to worship you with other believers without fear, to know that we are part of a great family of God that goes around the world and that on this Sunday, millions of Christians have worshiped already and will worship as the sun continues its shining around the world. Lord, we are grateful for this church, this community, this family you've brought us into, and we're grateful for this passage of scripture how you have allowed it to not only be recorded but preserved and translated that we might read and understand in our own language who you are, what you have done for us, and what you require of us as your children. We pray that your spirit will lead us in understanding your truth today. In Christ's name, amen. Second Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Returning evil for good. This is a very sobering lesson, but it's one that needs to be taught. I think I've told you on one or two other occasions, there are some lessons I really loved giving and others that I thought, well, it's the truth. It needs to be said, but it's sometimes a little harsh. Well, this is one of those lessons today. Second Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, returning evil for good. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Haman, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. It's really awful when anyone tries to do something good and kind and right. And instead of it being received graciously, they are mocked or insulted. And this happens to you and me as well as those of ancient days. 
This story of David and Hanun is an amazing story that goes way back. The Ammonites are a group of people that are descendants of Lot. And remember, their beginning was not particularly auspicious because after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Lot and his two daughters escaped. His wife was killed along the way. And his daughters said, there is no man around to produce any descendants for us. So they got their father drunk, slept with him, became pregnant, and gave birth to children. And that was the beginning of the Ammonite tribe. Nothing to be really proud of, but an historical fact. And because they are related to the Israelites through this relationship of Lot and Abraham, they were told to be kind to Israel and not attack them as they came out of the wilderness. And they abided by that. But they were not totally blameless. And throughout their history and the history of Israel, sometimes they were friends, sometimes they were foes. Sometimes they fought against each other, and sometimes they worked together to do what was right. And here we see David wanting to send these ambassadors to Ammonites to commiserate with them on the death of the king and to celebrate the rise of his son as the new king. And his messengers are horribly insulted. If you really get a picture of this, you understand how humiliated they were And David gets word of this and tells them, go apart and wait for a while. Let your beards grow back out. Get some garments again to cover yourselves, and I will take care of this. And he did indeed. Haman is somebody who got some really, really bad advice. They could have welcomed these messengers, celebrated with Israel the rise of their king, and life would have gone on well. But instead, because of this bad advice that the new king took. There was nothing but war and subsequent slavery involved to these people. David and the warriors took out all the other nations that helped Ammon with this, and they did not destroy the Ammonites by killing them, but they enslaved all of them for their own use in their own households and in their own army. When evil is returned for good, there will be war. There's just no other way around it. When someone is trying to do something good and they are insulted and evil is returned to them, there are going to be hurt feelings. There's going to be anger. There's going to be retribution that comes about. That's just the way it's set up. Having this in mind then, this object lesson of these people and their treatment of David, What happens when God is kind to his creation and is insulted by his creation's response? It does not work out well. At the very beginning, we go back to Adam and Eve in that wonderful state of perfection, in the garden, enjoying fellowship with God, conversing with him as a friend to a friend, a truly unique relationship with the creator God and themselves. But when tempted to want to be as powerful as God was, they succumbed and they insulted God by disobeying him. They did the one thing he said they should not do, and because of that, they suffered greatly. You're familiar with that story 
and its implications for all of mankind from that point on. Evil had entered into man's heart, and it would not really be taken care of until Christ came. And even then, the battle still rages. Jesus' treatment by the Jews on coming into Jerusalem. Jesus, as a son of God, knowing who he was, who his father is, what his mission on life is to be, he goes to his own people, and they do not receive him. Yes, some did, the disciples, and then many thousands after his resurrection, the beginning of the church. But as Jesus comes into Jerusalem in that triumphal entry and everyone is praising God and shouting and singing and dancing, just a few days later, some of the same crowd are shouting for his crucifixion. They rejected God's kindness to them expressed in Jesus Christ. And because of that rejection, the parables that Jesus told were fulfilled. God punished the nation of Israel in the most dramatic way possible. In 70 AD, the Romans came in, and it was not like any other conquest that they had endured. There was complete and total destruction. Crucified Jews along the roads for miles going into Jerusalem. Josephus, a historian, claims that they ran out of wood. There were so many that they were tortured to death because of their defiance of Rome. And the temple was destroyed. The temple worship was brought to an end. No more sacrifices. No more priesthood. No more tangible way to go forgiveness of sins. The wrath of God had indeed come upon those who had rejected his son as their savior. Making an enemy of God is a really, really bad idea. We're not going to go back, but I want to remind you, in those first two chapters of Romans, we actually see how Paul describes the wrath of God to those who deliberately disobey him or ignore him. Those horrible, horrible words, God gave them over. Okay? If you don't want to believe what I've said, you don't uh, believe from observing nature, you can go your own way, and it is to self-destruction. That's what happens to those who spurn God. They end up destroying themselves. We might not see it outwardly, and for some people we may not be aware of it until we are in heaven and find out they are not. But God will not be insulted. He wants us to worship him and him alone. What happens when someone deliberately disobeys God? Well, not only does God turn us over, okay, if you're going to reject me, you want to worship these other things, go ahead, see what happens. Life will never go well for you. And I'm going to read two other passages that are actually, to me, some of the most terrifying in Scripture as well, right alongside with God letting them go their own way. And we've already encountered these in our Sunday morning sermons 
that we've been hearing from Richard as he goes through Hebrews. They are harsh words, but they are true. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, there are other passages we know in Scripture that talk about election and about the security of the saints, and that is absolutely true. But what the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing here is do not presume upon God's grace and cease to obey him and to follow him. You are deluding yourself, you're deceiving yourself, and it is proof that you never really once understood him as Lord of your life. A stern warning. And then again in Hebrews chapter 10, if there were only once, we might say, well, it's a dramatic illustration. This is twice within a couple of chapters. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I could stop right there and then try to keep all of you from going home and committing suicide. <laughs> These are harsh words. And actually, they were part of a very famous sermon that a long-time evangelist gave. And we are told that it, his brother did leave and took his own life. I really don't know the truth of that. I'd love to find out a little bit more about it. But it shows the drastic impact of this particular passage on our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. It is a horrible thing to proclaim him as Lord and then turn away from him and never come back. Very, very harsh words. Now, most of us, I think, would say, well, that is terrible, but in looking at my life, I think I've kept the Ten Commandments pretty well. I haven't murdered anybody. I've tried not to uh, worship goods or services or violate somebody else's honor. We can kind of justify ourselves in that, but we can't get away from what Jesus said was the greatest commandment of all. And this is where I want to center our attention, not just on outward performance, but inward attitudes. So when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Mark 12, 29 through 31. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. No times in past, during the Lenten season, I would read the Ten Commandments at the beginning of every worship service and then end it with this passage. If you ever think you have nothing to confess to God, go ahead and read this and realize, no, I'm guilty. I have not done that. There have been thoughts I've had that were not right and some actions and some attitudes because this is the law of God. To love the Lord your God with your entire being and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm not going to go off. This is one of those wonderful tangents. The beauty of that passage is when we come to know Jesus Christ, we begin to love ourselves in the right way. We begin to appreciate who we are because we are a child of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have all the rights and privileges that come along with being daughters and sons of the king. And because we truly love ourselves in the right way, we can love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And because we love ourselves in what Christ has done, we can love our neighbor for what God has done for us. We love God. It's all tied in together. And we all fail in this at one point or another. In thinking about this, it also reminded me that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. That is the most difficult of all. I just don't care what happens to you. It means nothing to me. To hate someone indicates that there's some kind of feeling there that could be worked through. But to just be totally indifferent is a horrible statement in itself. The problem is, are we indifferent to God? Maybe not actively opposing him, maybe not directly confronting him, maybe not going into a profligate lifestyle, but are we indifferent to God and to what he has done for us? Have we misused the gifts that God has given each one of us to build up the body of Christ? Lots and lots of different gifts, not just limited to those listed in Scripture, but by the Holy Spirit, things that we know we can do that will bring honor to God and will build up his church. And if we do not do that, if we are indifferent to using what God has given us, we are sinning. And we need to get back on track to say, Lord, here I am. Use me as you will. Guide me in knowing how I can use what you have blessed me with. And what is the effect on others? What is the effect on you and me when we decide not to exercise the gifts God has given us? Frustration, anger, unsettledness, a troubled conscience because we're not right with the God who has loved us. And if we are indifferent to him, we're in trouble.
Are we not trusting God to take care of our past, to leave that in his hands? I talked about this last week. Leave it alone. It's done, over, forgiven. Move ahead. Do not let Satan use that to torment you. God has forgiven. He is healed. You move ahead. Not trusting God with our future. Knowing that as we age, things happen. And we worry about what we can and can't do. We worry about what's going to happen with those we love if we're not with them. Are we trusting God with our future as well? Trusting God with our time, with our resources. Am I using this time the way the Lord would have me use it? Am I using the resources he has blessed me with in a way that would honor him? There are all ways in which we can show indifference to the loving God who has showered his blessings upon us, heightened by the gift of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But, but, I'm not going to stop there either. The best has been saved for last. A passage I've already used in previous lessons. I'll probably use a lot more in the future. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Hear this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, that takes care of it. That's all that needs to be said. As long as we are conscious of our sin, there is hope because we can confess that and be right with the Lord and he forgives us. It's when we continue to sin and become so callous we're not even aware of it, we don't reach out in confession. We don't reach out to God. That's trouble. But there's nothing you and I have thought. There's nothing that you and I have done. There's nothing that you and I have misused that cannot be forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. It changes everything because we don't have to worry about returning evil for good. We love God and he loves us. This is our forever hope. No matter how old we are, this is our forever hope. Never be deceived into thinking that you are past hope. Never. There is no such thing with Jesus Christ. There is always hope in him. Our lives might not go as we wanted, might not go as we expected, but as long as we are faithful and loyal to him and return his love to us, we will be okay. This is the gospel message. God is ever ready to heal and to restore. Ever ready to heal and restore. So, what happens when you return good for good? God's blessings come into our lives. I'm going to use a passage that might not be familiar in this context, but I know it's very familiar to you. It's Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. This describes about what happens when you and I return good for good. God has been good to us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. 
we have been good to God by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and yielding our lives to him, owing everything to him. When we do that, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Good for good, all of those attributes are ours. And what a wonderful life it is. It is not dependent upon material things. It is not dependent upon others' recognition of us. It is not dependent upon anything that we might think we own. It is simply dependent on God's grace and what he has done for us. He has been so good to us. Don't return evil, but return good. A yielded heart, a yielded life. Life is good under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Always, always, with God, return good for good. And life will be good. A hymn, one I was not particularly familiar with, but boy, the power of these words. I want a principle within. I want a principle within of watchful, godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. Help me the first approach to feel of pride or wrong, wrong desire, to catch the wounding of my will and quench the kindling fire. The poetry is so powerful there. Lord, even if there's just a slight inclination to sin, let me wipe it out before it catches hold. Let me recognize it and, and stop that fire from burning in my heart and soul. From thee that I no more may stray, no more thy goodness grieve. Grant me the filial awe, I pray, the tender conscience give. Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is nigh. And keep it still awake. Almighty God of truth and love, to me thy power impart. The burden from my soul remove, the hardness from my heart. Oh, may the least omission pain my reawakened soul and drive me to that grace again which makes the wounded whole. Ah, what wonderful words. What a wonderful God we serve. Don't repay evil for good. Give good back for good received. Let's pray. Lord, you have been beyond words good to us. Not only in making us in your own image, but not giving up on us when our ancestors turn their backs on you. 
how you've had a plan from the very beginning to bring about redemption, that we would no longer walk in darkness or pettiness, but would walk in the light and the strength and the joy of knowing you through Jesus Christ. Protect us, God. And when there is that temptation that we might yield to, whether thought or word or deed, grant that by your spirit we will recognize it quickly and not go down that path. We love you, Lord. We want to honor you. We want you to be proud of us. We know we fail, but we know your faithfulness to us. So, Lord, hold us ever close and grant that as we walk this life, however long or short it will be, we will continually give honor and praise and glory to you and to you alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.